0: Hello! Hello! And welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. My name is Darcy and I'm a producer here at the IAI. And my name's Charlie and I'm also a producer here at the IAI. And today we've got A Tale of Truth, featuring author of Think and Truth, A Guide for the Perplexed, Simon Blackburn. And this took place at Hey, How the Might Festival 2022, the festival produced by the team here at the IAI. So, Charlie, tell us a bit about the talk. So this talk was about Simon Blackburn and his views on truth whether truth is something to do with facts about the world that correspond in the world, or whether truth is actually something more profound and more like a tool that's useful for our survival, but not something that's ever set in stone. Well, I think we've got a lot to look forward to. And remember, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit ii.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. Now, it's time to welcome Simon Blackburn to Philosophy for Our Times.
1: I've written three books with the word, well, I've edited one book and written two with the word truth in the title. So you'd expect me to have quite a lot to say about it. But in fact, the philosophical moral I'm going to draw is that there is actually nothing to say about truth. And I'll try and explain why. Obviously, the first thing to say about truth, as everybody says, is that truth is correspondence with the facts. And that's true, it's perfectly, decent to say, thing to say. And yet, nearly all philosophers reject what they call a correspondence theory of truth. So why do you say that truth is correspondence with the fact, but that's not a theory? Because it doesn't really give you an entree into the notion. It doesn't give you a procedure for finding the truth, for example. It's all very well saying truth is correspondence with the facts. But then it turns out that finding the facts is just the same thing as finding the truth, and it's just the same thing as finding what to believe. So there's no process, as it were, of putting your beliefs onto a a platform saying, now, that's what I believe. Let's see if it corresponds with the facts. Because by the time you believe it, you already believe that it's true, and therefore you believe that it corresponds with the facts. But there's no independent, there are, of course, independent processes of discussion, verification, falsification. You can subject your beliefs to scrutiny by all means, and it's a good thing to do very often. But as you object to scrutiny, it's not that you've got a sort of independent way of getting behind them and seeing the facts. Finding the facts is just the same thing as finding what to believe and what you regard as true. So correspondence with the truth, while it's a good thing to say, doesn't actually cut very much ice. And that's why philosophers say it's not a theory. So, what do you get instead? The next classical thing to say about truth was that it's, um, you, you can't verify it and falsify it by co- means of correspondence with the facts, an independent body of knowledge. What you've got to do is assess truths and assess beliefs for truth in the light of other things that you believe. So basically, it's a matter of using the friction provided by other beliefs in order to assess and probabilify or render improbable any particular belief. For example, let's think of something you all, you, all think, you all think you know your mother's name. I take it. Most of you do. And suppose somebody says, well, I'm not sure whether your mother was actually called whatever you think she was called. What can you do? You could say, come on, I believe this. My sisters and brothers believe this. We were always told this. So what's the skeptic? What, what, what doubt are you trying to raise, you might say? And the doubt might be that, for example, your mother went under a pseudonym for much of her life. So you say, well, all right, I can verify that. I can." go back to the parish records. I know which parish she was born in, and I know where the church records are, and I can go and find and Look, there it is, it's, her name's written down. That's fine, so long as you can rely on that being an accurate parish record that hasn't been falsified. It's not a document that's emerged out of some forgery. But you need your beliefs about the parish register in order to use the parish register as a check upon what you believe about your mother's name. And a number of philosophers took this as rather important because it suggests that you, you've got to check any particular belief against other beliefs. So the suggestion arose that truth is fundamentally coherence. It's, it's, uh, it's the mutual support given by other beliefs to a particular belief that amounts to the justification and the, its credentials as being true, its certification as true, is provided by its coherence with other beliefs. And this gave rise to a coherent theory of truth, which was quite popular in the 19th century. Hegel is a possible source interpreting Hegel is always a a zero-sum game, but, um, but he may have thought that. Certainly the British idealists, notably Bradley, thought this, and a chap called Joachim. And it's grumbled on into the 20th century. There are quite a lot of coherentists in the 20th century. The trouble is that there are coherent stories which include falsity. You can easily make up coherent stories about, say, historical periods, which include things which are not true. So it's only when you've got decent verification procedures, decent, de- somehow getting your feet on the ground, that you can be sure that any particular coherent story is in fact true. You could have, have coherent fictions. Russell gave a lovely example. He, there was a bishop of Oxford uh, in his day um, and uh, Russell who'd just died, actually, when Russell was writing this, and Bishop Stubbs, he was called, and Russell said he could tell a perfectly coherent story whereby Bishop Stubbs died on the gallows. In other words, he was convicted of murder and hung. This wasn't true. Bishop Stubbs was in fact a perfectly saintly chap and he died in his bed. But Russell said that he could make up a coherent story in which that was. Now, of course, you might say it wouldn't retain its coherence if Russell had done the right processes of verification, if he'd gone and looked at newspapers and seen whatever else was known about the biography of Bishop Stubbs. But nevertheless, Russell's point was that if you if you weren't curious, if you didn't go through the right processes of verification, you could tell a coherent story which involved a lot of falsehood. So coherence by itself didn't seem to be enough. You've got to get something else. Let me go back to correspondence for a moment. When we think of correspondence with the facts, we probably think of the facts as in some sense available to us independently of what we believe as if you could look and see the facts just plain in front of you like a scene so suppose you think of verification of a belief in terms of a scene it's all very well for some beliefs perhaps Um, the heyday of the correspondence theory in the early 20th century was Russell again, defended it, and Wittgenstein. Wittgenstein's first book was called The Tractatus Logico-Philosophicus. In fact, it's the only book that Wittgenstein ever published. Wittgenstein apparently was much impressed when he wrote that book by a scene he'd witnessed in a court in Paris where there was something to do with a traffic accident. And the court was presented evidence in the form of sort of two dinky toys or however many dinky toys it took, meandering around a, a sort of little doll's house type setup. And that showed the jurors or the judges what had happened in the course of this traffic accident, how the accident happened. So it was a model. And Wittgenstein thought that seeing this model was in some sense a paradigm for of finding the truth. And the elements of the model corresponded to elements in the real world. This stinky toy corresponded to the car that the defendant was driving. This one co- corresponded to the car that got crashed into or whatever it was. So you've got this sort of one-to-one correspondence between what was shown in the model and what was shown in the real world. And Wittgenstein thought that's correspondence. Came became known as the picture theory of meaning. And it's all very well, but it doesn't seem to work for all facts if you think about it. And it doesn't work very well for negative facts. For example, how could you show a picture showing that something didn't happen? I've actually got a nice story about this. My family and I have often gone for walking holidays in Scotland with some friends, and we started off on the shores of a place called Loch under the Five Sisters of Kintail, if any of you know the northwest of Scotland. And there, there was a holly tree in the grounds of the house we were in. And there's a story about this tree that, when the holly tree grew to the point at which its trunk was the size of a cart axle, there's a prophecy. The Brean seer was a chap with prophetic powers. And he exercised his prophetic powers by looking through a hole in a stone. He had a stone with a hole in it. And when he looked through this hole, he could see the future, which is very impressive. Uh, I'm not sure how often his prophecies were verified, but they were, they were certainly quite famous. And the stories tell that when he, when he came to this holly tree, which was very little sapling, when he lived in the 16th century. He looked through his, the hole in the stone and he gave the prophecy. And the prophecy was, when this holly tree, is trunk is big enough to form the axle of a cart, a great battle will not be fought on this spot. Well, now, you have to ask yourself, what did he see? (laughs) And and there's no answer. He couldn't possibly have seen something which deserved predicting, as a great battle will not be be fought on this spot. But what did happen was, about 70 years later, when the holly tree had indeed grown quite a lot. Two armies, I think it was General Monk and Montrose, was it, in the, the covenanting wars in Scotland in the early 17th century. One went down Loch duick and the other army went up Loch Long, which is parallel to it, and they missed. <laughs> so, 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 in fact, it was true that a great battle was not fought on this spot. Um, but you can't just see a scene in which it's correct to describe it as a great battle was not, we can say there's no great battle being fought here tonight, but, but it, it wouldn't have justified the brain and Sear in making that prediction. Anyhow, the point is that when you've got complex beliefs, a belief in this case of, of a negative fact, it's not like having the scene. It's not, it's not something that simply be shown you. Again, it's got, to, it's got to be an interpretation of the scene, and it's through the, through the arrival of different interpretations of scenes that we form our beliefs and decide what's the case. So correspondence only gets you so far, if, if anywhere. Coherence, on the other hand, doesn't quite cut it because you can have coherent stories that are false. So where do you go next? There was a, a movement in philosophy parallel to the arrival, some of you may have heard of the arrival of analytical philosophy, which was largely due to Russell and Moore at the beginning of the 20th century. There's a parallel movement going on in America called pragmatism. And that's what I want to talk to you about. The, the principal pragmatist was Charles Sanders Peirce, C.S. Peirce a very fine philosopher. He was actually not a professional philosopher. Professionally, his life was with the United States Geological Survey, who was a scientist. And, but nevertheless, he wrote extensively about philosophy He was part of the, a group of people basically surrounding William James in Harvard. And Peirce really was the moving spirit along with some other people. There's always some people, other people in a philosophical movement He was the leading light of pragmatism, and he was probably the best pragmatist. William James had a lot of pizzazz about him and wrote about pragmatism, but Peirce was there before him. Anyhow, Peirce began, I think, the, the emphasis on practice as the litmus test of truth. So truths were going to be the things which were useful, the simplest. this theory could take would be the view that truth is utility, and William James himself actually used that kind of formula. So James, for example, then came across, he was criticized, vehemently criticized by Russell and Moore, they said that James basically thought that wishful thinking gave you the truth. So if you found the belief very convenient, if you liked it, if you hoped that it was true, that was eventually a matter of it being true because it was useful to you to believe it. But that's not the form that utility has to take if it's going to be a litmus test for truth. It might be useful to you and pleasant to believe that you're the most popular child in the class. But if 20 people each believe that, then 19 of them are wrong. So even if it's useful for each of them to believe it. So believing of yourself that you're popular might be useful, it's good for your frame of mind, but it's not true. So there's, again, as a definition, it just seems to fall down. So what is the right thing to say about truth? if pragmatism doesn't give you it, if correspondence doesn't really give you it, if coherence doesn't really give you it, what's the next proposal for a litmus test? And the quest for such a thing seemed to rather stall. There was no further theory forthcoming. But what philosophers did instead, and this was really pioneered by a German called Gottlob Frege, a philosopher of mathematics, and taken up in Britain by Ramsey, F.P. Ramsey, Frank Ramsey, I'll talk about him a bit more later. Um, This was the view that in a sense there is no room for a theory of truth. You don't want a theory of truth. You shouldn't be looking for one. Why not? The first thing that Frege noticed was that In most contexts, in many, many contexts, it makes absolutely no difference whether you add is true to what you say or leave it out. So if you ask me what the weather's like today, I say it's cold. I could have said it's true that it's cold or the fact is it's cold. Doesn't make any difference. The the amount of information I give you is just the same. Or again, if I say it's cold, you could say, yeah, that's true. Or you could say, yeah. Or you could just say something like, ditto, that goes for me. Yeah, I'm on board with that. Yeah. So in other words, it's a device of signaling agreement with a remark that somebody's made. Frege took that to suggest that really, it, it was a very strange kind of concept. If Most words that philosophers concentrate on If you add them to a situation or saying, you've got a property or something that's added to the situation, and then the property might be one that excites philosophical worries. So here you've got an animal, supposing somebody comes along and says, this animal is conscious. Ooh, consciousness, what's that? And philosophers start to argue about it and worry about it. But if you've got a belief and somebody comes along and says it's true, they're saying no more than that they share it. So what's the property that's been added? What's the thing we should concentrate on?
0: Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to IAI.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month and there's no commitment to pay so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level.
1: I like to put this by saying, you imagine the situation of Pontius Pilate uh, in the biblical story. So Pontius Pilate is faced with the crowds telling him that Jesus is guilty of some particular crime against the state. And at the end of hearing of the hearing, Pontius Pilate is supposed to have said, What is the truth? Now admittedly, Jesus was saying some funny things. He was saying things like, I am the truth which is a very odd thing to say when you think about it. But but Pilate's question was, what is the truth? And the right answer to that seems to be, you tell me what you're interested in. What's your problem? Pilate's job is to discover whether the guy in front of him is guilty of some crime. (laughs) Okay, it's true if he's guilty of that crime. That's your job. Your job is to find out if he's guilty of the crime. That's the that's what you've got to discover, whether that's true. But that's just discovering whether this guy is guilty of the crime. Now, the thing is, we can be asked to discover all kinds of things. My wife might ask me to discover if there's any butter in the fridge. I can go to the fridge, see if there's butter there. and I can say, yeah, there's butter in the fridge. In that case, I've discovered that it's true. that there's butter in the fridge. Suppose I go to my wife and say, it's true, there is butter in the fridge. And she says, what is truth? <laughs> I, say, I say, hang, hang on, no, uh, the truth is, you asked me to find out whether there's butter in the fridge, I just found out that there's butter in the fridge. I just told you, it's true. What is true? There's a, a wheel skid. And I could have asked me for any of a dozen things. Are there onions in the fridge? Ooh, yes, it's true. Hmm? Uh, what's true? It's true, there are onions in the fridge. How do you know what is truth? Oh, look, I'm telling you, there are onions in the fridge. <laughs> That's all I'm telling you. In other words, the word truth has a, true, has a sort of self-effacing property. You, so when Pilate asked, what is truth? The right answer should have been to say, you tell me. Not, of course, you tell me what truth is. You tell me what you're interested in, and I'll tell you what you've got to find out. If Paul said, "Well, I'm interested in whether the camel train leaves for Jerusalem tomorrow," I say, "Yeah, that's going to be true if and only if the camel train leaves for Jerusalem tomorrow. If that's what you're interested in finding out, that's what you've got to find out." But there's nothing much in common between finding that there's butter in the fridge, finding there's onions in the larder, finding that the camel train leaves for Jerusalem tomorrow. These are all very different things, and you might be interested in any of them. So the question of what's the truth, or what is truth, seems to dissolve into the question of what are you interested in? Tell me what you're interested in finding out. Tell me what you're interested in refuting, or proving, and then that answers it. That's all you've got to do. So this became known as the redundancy theory of truth. That is the view that the word is redundant. It's just, it's a bit like thumping the table. Some people like thumping the table. Perhaps, well, I have not a table to thump, but I could thump my knees, you see. I said, now, listen to me. There was this guy, Frege. And I thumped my knee and said, that's true, there was this guy Frager. All I'm saying is this guy frager I may be showing that I'm really emphatically behind this, but that's just a matter of drama, as it were. It's not a matter of adding to the content of what I'm telling you. So the idea became that truth was redundant. And in fact, Ramsey, I'll just say a word or two about Ramsey. There's a wonderful biography of Ramsey by a woman called Cheryl Mishak, a Canadian. If any of you see it in the bookshops, I strongly recommend you to buy it. Ramsey was a young genius. He was born in 1903 and he died in, at the beginning of 1929. He died when he was 26. And he's left a legacy in mathematics. their are Ramsey numbers. In in logic, there are Ramsey sentences, there's the Ramsey test for conditionals. In economics, there's Ramsey saving theory, there's Ramsey taxation theory. He'd done all this by the time he was 26 when he died. He probably died um, uh, because he went swimming in the cam and picked up the river cam in Cambridge. And he picked up, uh, it's called Viles disease, and that killed him. Anyhow, he was a genius and a great influence on Wittgenstein. It was Ramsey who really forced Wittgenstein to abandon the picture theory of the Tractatus, the one I mentioned, the one with the models in the Paris law court, by pointing out that really it didn't do justice to all sorts of ways in which we judge facts. Ramsey championed the idea that truth was redundant. And unfortunately, like so many ideas in philosophy, that proves to be not quite adequate because it's often not redundant. If I tell you, for example, that everything Einstein said was true, you can't get rid of the word true from that sentence. You can't just remove it as, as it were, just a rhetorical flourish like banging my knees. Because it's a distinct fact about Einstein, if it's true, that everything he said was true. It may not be true, but if it is true, then everything Einstein said was true. But you can't just say everything Einstein said, full stop. That's not a piece of information, that's not discussable. Everything Einstein said was true. So how does the Frege-Ramsey view of the truth as redundant cope with that? It. The redundancy theory had to answer that kind of question, and to do it involved, it evolved. It, it became renamed, rebranded. It was rebranded as a deflationism, it's called. And what happens there is, you don't go back to substantive theory like correspondence, coherence. You don't go through the paths we've already been through or try to add to them. You say, look, Frege and Ramsey were in essence right, but we've got to show that they were right in a slightly more complicated way. And the idea is everything Einstein said was true is now thought of as a kind of series of conditionals. And the conditionals can, all of them, be listed, maybe a long list, because Einstein may have said a lot of stuff, but it can be listed, they can in principle be listed And you then say, look, the thing about Einstein is if Einstein said P, then P. If Einstein said that the cat is on the mat, then the cat is on the mat. If Einstein said that E equals MC squared, then E equals MC squared, and so on. So if you give me the complete list of what Einstein said, I can, if I say everything Einstein said was true, then I'm just saying for each of those things, if Einstein said that, then that. And I don't have to say that's true, I just say if Einstein said that the cat was on the map, then the cat was on the map. If Einstein said there was onions in the larder, then there were onions in the larder. If Einstein said that, and so on. And if that series goes on without ever ever delivering something which was not the case, then everything Einstein said was true. So you can work your way around the objection to the redundancy theory. And you get to what's called the deflationary theory of truth. And the best way of thinking of the deflationary theory of truth, which is probably the leading contender in contemporary philosophy, is that there is absolutely nothing to say about truth. You can say everything you want to say without it. And, of course, it, That doesn't, it's it's not as big a liberation as you might think. Doesn't mean that anything goes or anything like that. It just means you've got to take your procedures, your intellectual procedures, one at a time. You've got to look at one proposition at a time. You can say of this proposition it's true, of this proposition it's false. But you're never actually using a general term which has a general property to bring onto the table. So there's nothing to be theorized about. So I've wasted my entire life because I've written, <laughs> <laughs> I've written, as I say, two books and edited a third on the notion of truth. And yet the result is that there's absolutely nothing to say about it.
0: <laughs> well, that was an interesting talk. Indeed, and thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers.